At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. They say I'm disturbed. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spread. I think we're getting into a weird area here. Will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? This hysteria. You can't handle the truth. Truth. This is Hysteria 51. The truth is out there. It's a lie. But you won't find it here. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Cut cut the music. (sighs) Hey, David. I'm terrified. Mm -hmm. Oh, Lord. What? What's going on this time? Uh, Conspiracy Bot says climate change will kill us all. That's true. Well... He also says TCBY would rise up before 2025 and take its place as the true ruler of this planet. I mean, in addition to him, you know. Hey, there is still time, so calm your tits meat sack. Nation, if you haven't guessed it, tits on a meat sack. Uh, well, that just means that just means you're sane. Uh, but we're talking about climate change this week. <laughs> that is correct. Climate change, among other things. Uh, but told through the lens of the Devil's Dictionary, a book not just with an amazing title, but an amazing author, one Stephen Kotler. That's right. And uh, just so you know, we are broadcasting from the lower fourth dimension, also known as Chicolorado. uh, (laughs) I don't think that exactly rolls off the tongue, does it? The fuck it doesn't. (laughs) It's a work in progress. Uh, We are your hosts and lead planeteers this week. Uh, Brent is fire. I am heart. Um, and the bots are running around like usual. I don't run. I have wheels, you plebe. God, help us all. Good luck on steps. Anyway, to the man of the hour. Brent, tell us about Stephen Yes, Cotler. Mr. Co- Mr. Cutler. <laughs> uh, not exactly <laughs> Cotler. I'm, I'm sure he has never heard that before. <laughs> Much like everyone that we have on here, his resume uh, outshines us immensely he's amazing he's a new york <laughs> times best-selling author we're talking nine bestsellers out of this 13 books total that really? is amazing uh and um he's got a fascinating array of books such as the art of impossible tomorrowland the rise of superman last tangling in cyberspace which is a prequel to the book we're talking this week and many many more not one to rest he's also an award-winning journalist he's been nominated for two pulitzer prizes Luckily for us, he hasn't won any, or he probably would have been on the show. And <laughs> he's done his own TEDx talk. He's the executive director of the Flow Research Collective, a peak performance research and training institute that researches the neuroscience of flow states and trains individuals to harness the power of flow so they can achieve more faster. Interesting key note here, the way that we got in touch with him is they keep wanting to test me and try to understand how I have reached, as they call it, peak of human potential and i just don't have the time sadly yeah the uh, same 
Same here. I hadn't told you, but same. Uh, Beside that truth, (laughs) near and dear to our hearts here at H51, Stephen is a dog lover and co-founder of Rancho de Chihuahua. It's a hospice and special needs dog sanctuary. How fucking awesome is that? That is something. If I had the money, we'd be doing it out here right now ourselves. That's me. Yeah. We, we, Lisa and I have worked with uh, several rescues and we still work with Chi-Town Pities. It's where all of our, our mutts, our strays come from. And, uh, we donate time and money and everything to them. If you have, uh, the ability for pets or for people or whatever's in your heart, please do. And if not, well, we understand, but, uh, you know, it helps make the world a little bit better of a place. And it makes up for the shit that we do on the side, you know. <laughs> um, the capstone uh, on this incredibly impressive resume, though. And I don't want to tell any tales out of school here. But uh, he's now been featured on Hysteria 51. Talk about peak performance. Amen. So time to brush up on his Wikipedia and all that stuff, I think, is what we're getting at there. Well, I, I think now he can move that tassel over to the left side, right? <laughs> he gets a, <laughs> uh, he gets a, a new uh, stripes that go around his shoulder. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's a bolero. <laughs> <laughs> why, does, why does that metal look like a stain on your shirt? <laughs> it's none of your goddamn you know, business. No, it's it's none of your business, but if you have to know, it's made of hardened mustard, so <laughs> shut up. <laughs> so there. <laughs> so there. <laughs> so back to the story at hand, a hardened mustard. Now, Stephen's latest book, The Devil's Dictionary, it seeks to entertain readers while educating them about climate change. I find climate change incredibly entertaining. (laughs) And uh, that is right on brand. Thankfully for us. (laughs) You didn't make any parts of him absolutely heat proof though, right? I mean, get out in the sun. (laughs) It's going to be some problems. (laughs) Luckily he's like me and he, he avoids the sun at all times because you know, you know, lazy (laughs) anyway, thankfully for us, and to the chagrin of one robot we know, rather than the usual doom and gloom approach, Stephen talks about how our happiness and success depends on overall happiness and success of the planet we inhabit. And that's kind of an important thing. Exactly. He uses fiction not just to entertain, but to basically generate dialogue and discussions to alert others of, of climate change and shed light on existing technologies that could combat climate change now. Yeah. Don't you just hate it when someone teaches you all the while being entertaining? The fucking nerve of some people. I tell you. <laughs> he lied to us through song. I hate when people do that. Uh, and it released just in time for Earth Day 2022, almost like he's trying to prove a point. I don't know. I don't know about this guy. <laughs> oh, man. So anyway, the Devil's Dictionary addresses key conservation issues and explores groundbreaking ideas about how to preserve species and ecosystems, including um, I'm just I'm not going to get into the whole thing. There's a few things. Mega linkage, like large areas of rewilded lands, uh, carbon suckers, the way they they use like in places like Iceland that capture CO2 and biochar. It's a form of charcoal. Um, they use like green uh, vineyards across California to improve soil health. And my weather dominator. That was Cobra in the 80s, you hack. I'm pretty sure that. Wasn't that it? The weather dominator. Yeah, that sounds The weather dominator. I don't know. 
<laughs> and unlike most uh, cyberpunk, it's just harp, right? Yeah. Unlike most cyberpunk sci-fi stuff, it's not a dystopian future. It's set in. It's like one you would kind of want to be in. Uh, get, why don't you give us a quote from Stephen? Stephen says, "I'm a big believer in the power of imagination to shape the future and the power of fiction to expand the imagination." I wrote the Devil's Dictionary to provide an alternative vision of our environmental future. If we can't imagine this possibility, we'll never create this future. I wanted to bridge that gap, but had no interest in creating a perfect utopian world. I wanted a near-term version of our world where we've battled back the worst parts of species die-off and climate change. You're here. We're going to go to break real quick, and we come back, Steve is going to join us, and we're going to talk all there is to know about the Devil's Dictionary and how it's actually satanic, and we pulled a fast one on you. <laughs> actually, he's Ambrose Bierce, back from the dead. <laughs> on Hysteria 51. <laughs> Nation, what difficulties did you have with learning a new language in school or whenever you did it? Did you do it through textbooks or did you try to use some weird online thing? I know I took two years in high school and two years in college and I knew nothing. And that's because I wasn't using something like what we have been blessed to have as a longtime sponsor and we use it. Rosetta Stone, they're the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop or as an app. And the reason why I enjoy doing it, it immerses you in the language you want to learn instead of just being silly drills and a class you can sleep through. <laughs> I definitely use it. I, I think it's really cool how they have the speech recognition program on there. It gives you the feedback on the pronunciation. Are you making fun stuff. of me because I can never do that? That's what you're getting at right now. <laughs> That's what it, it's like, what are you trying to do? Do it right. <laughs> Uh, but it is really cool. They've got all kinds of lessons. You can do it uh, offline. You don't even have to be online for it. That is great because it's right there in your pocket or at your home and you can do it. You got 15 minutes. Let's go to town. Let's do it. You know, and mm -hmm. it's amazing value. Lifetime membership has all 25 languages available for any trips. You need language in life. You need to brush up on stuff. Maybe you just met a girl or a guy or a non-binary and they're from uh, somewhere else. Somewhere, you know, who knows? Well, if they're in the one of the 25, Rosetta's going to work for you. <laughs> you get lifetime access to all of that. And there is a 50% offer, so it is a steal. So don't put off learning language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Hysteria 51 listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for that 50% off that I just told you about. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, a today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back from break, everyone, and welcome in Stephen Kotler. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. It is good to be with you, gentlemen. 
Uh, how's it going? Are you enjoying the uh, the normal weather? Is it cold where you're at? You know, I guess it's an an app question asked uh, <laughs> going by what this book is about. How's it? How how is it where you're at? Uh, it, it it's actually still a little cold, which is awesome. Yeah, I'm in Chicago, and it's been it's been warm here. And then David is in Colorado, so he's got different weather like every other day. Where are you at, David? Oh, oh it's very pleasant. Yeah. yeah? Yeah. I was born in Chicago. I lived in Colorado, so oh. I've got. So you're I, you're a combination of both of us. <laughs> yeah, I, I got I got both of you guys covered. I'm a Midwesterner. Work hard, don't lie. I'm a Coloradan. When in doubt, throw yourself down mountains and high speeds. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I speaking of throwing yourself down mountains, I went skiing one time in my life, and I did the bunny slopes like two times. I'm like, I've got this. This is simple. <laughs> And I went up the ski lift and it was about the worst three hours yeah, of my so, life. So, so we, we, we in the business uh, of skiing, that is, uh, have, have a, uh, have a phrase for that. I think we call that famous last words. <laughs> this looks so, I, I, I'll tell you going straight is very, very easy. <laughs> yeah. It's the, you I pizza tell you what, and your French fry, you got it. I tell you what they, they <laughs> I tell you what they don't prepare you for is how hard it is on a hill to get your ski back on. Like when you're stopped, that was a lot of it was, Uh, Oh, 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 Be fortunate. You didn't have to learn at the time that they they didn't have step in bindings when the whole binding came off Mm -hmm. and you were attached to your ski by like a little rope. So you'd fall down the hill and your ski would be dragged behind you, beating you the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. (laughs) Stop that. Stop that. Stop that. (laughs) And again, this is the ski time hour with Brent and David. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. Your new book is The Devil's Dictionary, and it's actually a sequel to The Last Tangle, sequel in sorts of The Last Tangle in cyberspace. It's a sci-fi thriller following the exploits of Lion Zorn. For our listeners, real quick, who might not be familiar, do you have like an elevator pitch to sum it up nicely? I know that's like uh, a loaded question. I've got, I'm going to do my best. I've got a high (laughs) level and then I've got one level down. All right. You sort of need. High level is this. I really believe that if you cannot sort of imagine the future, you can't create it. I've spent half of my life working on innovation and disruptive technology and things along those lines. And there's a you know pretty clear link between what we can imagine and what we create in the real world. And I kept reading these sci-fi thrillers about a world where like the great environmental challenges that we're up against kicked our ass, right? Mm-hmm. Every near-term sci-fi thriller was about this environmental apocalyptic world. And I wanted to create a world where the biggest environmental challenges that we were up against, say climate change and species die off, like the rising extinction rates had been solved. And my question was, what kind of changes in society, both like as us, as people, as humans, psychologically and technologically would have to take place to create that world? So that's the backdrop. That's the world that set in. It's our world, like 15 years hence, where these big environmental challenges have have been sort of created. And it's sort of a story about two warring billionaires. Today, we've got billionaires who are like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, who are fighting to be the first dudes into space. In this environmental future, people are fighting to create mega linkages, these giant interlinked national parks. And 
our hero, our protagonist, Lion Zorn, gets hired by one of these billionaires to go investigate some very strange happenings at, at this kind of megalink, which is giant national park he's trying to create. There are dead bodies start showing up and exotic animals never before seen on Earth, new species start showing up. And Lion Zorn gets called in to investigate. And, you know, it's a cyberpunk sci-fi thriller. So there's menacing shadow corporations and and it you know sort of a page turner from there it was uh, refreshing though that it is this this cyberpunk noir type without the complete dystopian dropout horrible world that they're living in you know i thought that was kind of nice as it it wasn't i always you know it the the cyberpunk i sort of grew up on blade runner some of the early william Mm -hmm. gibson novels neil stevenson's snow crash really early cyberpunk they were dark worlds. There was a lot of, you know, dark shit going on in those worlds, but they weren't completely dystopian. They weren't right. entirely broken, destroyed. And I, you know, broken, destroyed. It, it, first of all, I don't know why you'd set a noir. Noir is already dark. Mm-hmm. And if you got yeah. a noir in a broken, <laughs> destroyed world, like you don't have a whole lot of emotional space to work with. Everybody's depressed. Yeah, and bad if, shit is happening. If right? the detective is drinking, like everybody else is too, so exactly. what makes it special. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it doesn't like. There's not from a storytelling perspective. Dark on dark doesn't give you a ton of wiggle room, you know, unless you're making fresh existentialist films or a DC comics uh, movie. I mean, that's how that works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you well, see how well that's worked for them. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's awesome. It touches on environmentalism, empathy, our relationship with the earth, and especially animals, and uh, a huge dose of AI. All things that you know, a lot of things we've talked about in here. How do you decide to tackle such a heavy topic through the lens of fiction? Because I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school. We've taking a collective shit on this planet <laughs> and you're, um, <laughs> you're, you're looking at it through a different lens. Um, I know it, it, it deals a lot with your background, but what was your driving force for this? Yes. I mean, so like driving force for the world was funny. I was, I write, you know, half of my career is spent on human performance and yeah. working on the neurobiology of flow states. Um, and the other half of my career has been spent working on kind of how do you use disruptive technology to solve grand environmental challenges? And um, on the disruptive technology side, a bunch of years ago, I was writing a book with Peter Diamandis called The Future is Faster Than You Think. And we were talking about exponentially accelerating technological lines of technology that were developing really, really, really fast. Like exponential means Moore's law. It means you're doubling periodically in strength and power on a regular basis. And there are about 12 different technologies that are proceeding on these exponential growth curves. And this has been going on for 15 years, and I've written a couple of books about it. But what's happening now is they're starting to converge. So it's not just AI. It's AI is bashing into robotics, is bashing into mm-hmm. virtual reality, and it's creating stuff we can't even imagine. And that was exactly the problem. I'm researching this book with Peter and I always like to say I'm a reporter. I'm not a futurist. Like when I write fiction, I'm writing fiction. Now. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a reporter. I'm a reporter. Be- people who prognosticate about what's going to happen tomorrow, that's not, I don't do that. I'm not an expert there. And I try to stay in my lane. But Peter and I had to talk about what was going to happen over the next 10 years. And I couldn't wrap my head around it. So I paused our research, created a world where those things were true and set a story in it. And then when I was looking for a way, what story do I set there? You know, the story I wanted to set was the story I always wanted to set, which is let's take 
We know what the big environmental solutions are. So what happens when we start putting them into place? What happens to society and to culture? And how do we make that change quickly? Those were sort of that was sort of the backdrop to how I started thinking about the world. When you, when you look at like the you know the thought of like conservation biology and things like that, and then putting it through this, is it hard to write? Uh, with a purpose like that, or does it come easy to you? I don't know if that I'm saying that correctly, but you know, no, what I it's mean? a great. It's, so it's a great question, and it's so you gotta, in my opinion, you gotta be real. So rule one for for my books, nonfiction or fiction, but I think this is doubly true for fiction. If you're gonna read one of my books, it's gonna take six, seven, eight hours, but based on reading time. But normal, that's that's where it usually comes out. If you're gonna do that. Give me six, seven hours of your life. That's a lot of time. We're all busy and there's a lot of other cool things to look at. And seven hours is a lot of time. I am going to give you a page turning, pulse pounding story where you're going to be laughing out loud at times. And you're also going to have your mind blown consistently because I'm really, you know, forcing you to think about some interesting, cool stuff, right? That's sort of my trade with the reader. And if that's your trade with the reader, be wary of big moral purpose. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can have themes, but you if you start beating your reader over the head yeah. uh, with your morality, it gets pretty freaking boring pretty fast. So it's a <laughs> delicate line to tow or be- type rope to walk, depending on which metaphor you want me to trample all over here. <laughs> um, but it, so I, I did it and I was really, ca- I tried to be very cautious with it because I didn't, sort of want to beat the reader over the head with it. And that's sort of why I created the world I created, because the world does a lot of the heavy lifting, mm-hmm. right? It's a world where these environmental challenges are being solved. So people have already a shift in mindset and psychology. The uh, A lot of the book is about how do we expand what psychologists call spheres of caring, right? A sphere of caring is basically how far does empathy extend? Right. And for most of it, it's, it's like friends and family, and sort of maybe tribe and country, right? But it doesn't often cross the barrier of species. We don't like extend our sphere of caring into plants, animals, and ecosystems. And that's the general theme of the book, right? If we want to save the world, we need to develop empathy for all, empathy for all humans, of course, but also for all plants, animals, and ecosystems. Right, and that that was a huge part of this because you have these people in your book, these empathy trackers, or these people that are they're growing their empathies where they're feeling empathetic for not just themselves but plants and animals and, and bonding with them yep. in one way or another, and that's a, such a fun idea. And then you have other people that are getting it through a drug uh, that, uh, you know, none of like- this is, by the way, none, of, you should know this is not all that weird. So I study flow, right? It's an altered state mm-hmm. of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. It's any of those in the zone locked in. I'm so focused on what I'm doing that everything else just starts to disappear in all aspects of performance, both mental and physical tend to go through the roof. Flow expands a lot of stuff. Two of the things that expands naturally are empathy and what is known to scientists as nature-relatedness, ecological awareness, or sometimes cross-species empathy, empathy for all, feeling for plants, animals, and ecosystems. In flow, this naturally happens. We expand our sphere of caring, and we, if especially if the flow states take place outdoors, we start really seeing and perceiving and caring about plants and animals and ecosystems. And that's one way of doing this that happens naturally. I do that work all the time in my research on flow. 
There's, you can also do the same thing with psychedelics. This is well known. A lot of the, one of the coolest new papers to come out of Robin Card Harris's lab at Imperial College in London, where they do all the sort of psychedelic brain imaging work is on nature relatedness. And he proved that if you do psilocybin, LSD, or I think he might've done MDMA, those three substances while outdoors, it radically expands nature relatedness and directly by extension, environmental activism. Yeah. So we know psychedelics will do this naturally. Flow will do this naturally. There's something about altered states that seems to do this naturally. So when I was looking for a, how do you get this shift to happen really fast in society? Well, of course I introduced a super new fun drug that <laughs> instantly produces cross-species empathy and allows you, I took it farther than where the science is right now, right? And allows you to sort of communicate with animals in a, in a deeper, meaningful way. Um, and that science sort of has been done two separately in, a, in different pockets of research. We've got AIs that can communicate with animals now and things like that. So like, I just brought all this shit together yeah. and, and put it into one thing. Well, and then you had one of the most realistic things, which was you have these people that are becoming empathetic and they want to commune and take care of nature and animals. And then the other people that have these feelings and go, I don't give a shit because I'm human and we're better than the rest of them. And that, I mean, the humans first movement, like it sounds sort of so strange, but I will tell you, my wife and I have for 25 years run animal sanctuaries. We do dog sanctuaries, hospice care and special needs care. And we are huge animal while, lovers here. So that is amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's fantastic. Thank, we, well, thank uh, you. <laughs> we, we did this work for a while in a very rural, very poor part of America. We wanted to work on the front lines and this was a very Catholic part of America. And for a very long time, it's changed actually, but it, the word hasn't spread. The Vatican told Catholics that dogs don't have souls. So they are not worthy <laughs> of the same attention that humans are. So when we were doing animal work in this community, people would come up to us and they'd be really mad at us. Why aren't you helping children? Children need the help. You Why are you wasting your time on dogs? And they'd be pissed. And that's a fairly extreme version of the humans first movement. Um, or one, you know, but like even the stuff that's, you know, I, that I rolled forward to create sort of our bad guys and our anti-heroes, um, they're based on stuff that exists today. Right. And that's, um, uh, amazing and scary. <laughs> I'll have to say yeah, that. You think? Know, right? I'm always like, where, where do they get the authority? They think, you know, somebody has made this up and said, this is from God. And so therefore everybody else has to, to act this way that I myself have made out. Like, is it the Pope? Is it some bishops? Here's my counter argument that I developed in that situation. Cause this is, this is where it gets really difficult. Mm -hmm. So however you want to measure like consciousness, intelligence, awareness, whatever, Right. So most people start with, can, can you feel pain? Yes. Dogs feel pain. Do they have emotions? Yes. As it turns out, dogs not only have the six, have the seven basic mammalian emotions that all mammals, including humans share, they have all our human social emotions. In fact, they're better developed than ours. So dogs, <laughs> for example, are better at face reading than yeah. humans are. They can look at your face and know what you're feeling better than like anybody, but basically your wife or you know, spouse kind of thing. Um, Debatable. That's, that's emotion. <laughs> that's, that was my chuckle. <laughs> what did you say? Debatable. Debatable. Okay, with fair, the enough. Spouse, fair with enough. Fair enough. Right, right. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, my bad on that one. Sorry. Um, but uh, 
if you measure intelligence, just go by vocabulary. Most dogs for English words, forget about dog language, right? But English words, it's between like 60 and 400 words. Mm-hmm. That's about a two to three year old with the emotional development of a three to four year old, basically. That's roughly what you're saying. We euthanize through shelters, roughly 8 million dogs a year. Yep. If we were euthanizing 8 million three to four year old children a year, people would go nuts. But that's essentially what we're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is a staggering, to think of it that way is mind-blowingly terrifying. It is. And, you know, I, I lost my little one at the end of last year. She um, she was so intelligent. She learned so many words over the course of her life. And then she unfortunately went deaf the last couple of years. And then she learned sign language. Wow. You know, and it's like, uh, you you cannot tell me that this is not a thinking, empathetic being. And if there is anything like a soul out there, this thing has it, you know? Well, we got three dogs at our house and they know all the words, but no. So, <laughs> God, you know, it's a disease. Actually, my dogs have that exact same disease. It's actually a plague. So we don't talk about it much. Like COVID got all the hype, but this dog no deafness that's <laughs> spreading through the land. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So it's, it was, um, the empathy side was just, I took all my friends who work in like animal rights and animal rescue who mm-hmm. really truly like think, you know, plants and animals and ecosystems deserve equal rights with humans. And I just rolled that into, okay, that's the world. Yeah. Like that's a huge chunk of the world agrees with that. And I will tell you, by the way, not that I make this argument in the book, though I do poke at it a little bit in Last Tango. It's a hard discussion when you start getting to trees <laughs> because tree consciousness and tree neuroscience are real things. They, you, 20 years ago, you brought that stuff up. Scientists would laugh at yeah. you. I've been, yeah. at, I've been at plant neuroscience conferences. Plants process information with the exact same neurochemicals humans do. They respond to information and communicate in real time using pheromones. They exhibit altruism. They exhibit empathy. They like they compete with strangers. It's like it starts getting really weird. Well, and a lot of that is um, willful ignorance on our side. Um, on our side, right? And, and not me, whether we know or not. What's cool about the sci-fi world, though, is you get to like look at questions like that, right? Which, you know, like, okay, so we're growing steak from stem cells. So we can have, you know, basically pain-free cow-free meat. And that's where that industry seems to be heading. And people go gross (laughs) and for some reason until meat prices go through the roof by 2030 cultured beef, like is cheaper than regular beef Mm -hmm. by a lot. Mm -hmm. And you can make it better for you. Right. Like we can take out the bad fats and put in the good fats and like suddenly fast food burgers are good for you. That's what cultured beef allows. Plus, we get to save the planet. It seems like a no brainer, but you have to have a brain for it to work, you know, (laughs) or the market. You just need the market sort of will take care of, you know, a lot of a lot of stuff. Money is the grand equalizer. Uh, for better or for worse, kind of with everything, <laughs> you know, <laughs> speaking a little bit on, on lion Zorn, he's no Jack Reacher. And I mean that in a good no, way. He's really not, you know, he's, he's really a normal not. guy, yeah. so to speak outside of his abilities. 
Um, but he can still get his butt kicked and stuff like that. That was kind of a refreshing approach. Was that something that you wanted to do? Like instead of like the super macho, you know, have someone more, I mean, it's hard to say relatable because of his abilities, but you know what I mean? I think it was three things. One was a storytelling thing, um, which is I, when I first started writing fiction years ago, 30 years ago, I thought the goal was to write as far away from yourself as possible. That's why they called it fiction. That's actually what they call bad fiction yeah. because you just don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Right. Like, I mean, like it doesn't like that was actually bad fiction. Didn't work. I feel attacked because that's kind of how I live my life. Just not knowing what the fuck I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) What? um, So I had to create a character, um, at least especially in a protagonist, when faced with an emotional situation, I had to ask the question, well, what would I do? I didn't yeah. have to do that, but I just had to like ask that. What would I do? What would my friends do in this situation? How would we feel about this situation? Because people, the technology may change, the world may change, and we may become more animal and plant friendly, but we're still the same, you know, kind. So I wanted to, I wanted to do that. Also, I am absolutely fucking sick to death of, you know, of heroes who have to beat their way up to become heroes. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. honest to God, I mean, we get it everywhere in the movies and television, and whatever. I don't know anybody in the world like that. And I grew up, like, I grew up around bikers and crazy people and whatever. And they, even they didn't want, violence was the thing you got to at the end after you tried all mm-hmm. the other stuff. It's not the, like, the first thing out. And violence has a nasty way of escalating in stories. So if in this first scene, it's a fist fight, by the last scene, you're blowing up the White House, yeah. right? And like, I, and that's just that's storytelling. So and I like, I wasn't interested in blowing up the White House. You know what I mean? I wasn't interested in not. I have some explosions in the book, and let's don't get me wrong. There is a flying motorcycle chase scene, and I think yeah. it's the first one in literature. So, <laughs> you know. Um, and you know, I so I did all that stuff, but I. Re- I wanted to be really care. I wanted to be right. Okay. A character I could know. I wanted to write a hero I believed in. Um, and I also like, it's the funny thing about violence. Like I was a competitive martial artist as a kid. I got punched and kicked wrong in a fight, a tournament fight. Mm-hmm. I just missed a kick and it got followed by a punch. And I was not only did like, they shatter my entire face and eye socket, oh. but it took 10 years and a bunch of surgeries until it was right again. Oh and so goodness. you see, yeah. like, that's what violence in the real world is a lot like, uh-huh. you know what I mean? Like, that's what really happens. And so these scenes were like, people get beat up and then they get back up again. Well, okay. Mm-hmm. But like, that's actually not the experience of real people in the real world. And if you're going to create this, like, futuristic noir world one of the things about those worlds it tends to be there's a lot of very they're real they're they're very much like this world and i just wanted to do a sci-fi thriller that's closer to like this world and closer to like the people i know Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like the people i know are empathetic nerdy smart you know streetwise perhaps and they're not going to like violence is the last thing they're going to do because like there's always somebody willing to be more violent than you if you go down that <laughs> yeah. road that's a that's a true statement i yep. used to i had a friend i grew up with a friend who became an enforcer for the hell's angels and i mean like this guy kept me alive for years and he was in and out of jail 
and was an enforcer for the Hells Angels. He wasn't that big of a guy. And at one point I asked him, I said, why, how can you do that job? Like, why you? You're not that big. And he said, oh, I'm just willing to do far more violence than anybody else thought possible. Uh, it takes, <laughs> Yikes. It right. takes a kind of, like, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. I mean, you know, by the way, the last I heard of it, he rolled a van in the Arizona desert and had like an arsenal in the back that was big enough to start a war. And he's been in jail ever since. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like those people are, are very, they're real. Like you go down the violence path and sooner or later you start bumping into those people. And if you want a real world, you know what I mean? Like that's a, that's a slightly different world than what yeah. I was trying to create. I wanted, I, again, our world as close to our world as I could get, but just these problems solved and, you know, the other problems we were dealing with. Well, speaking of problem solved and looking at the world that you've made is, is listeners read this and they get motivated to make change because I'm sure they will. What actions do you think they can take to help the world around them, around us? Like, where do you start to be a better person after reading this stuff with expand your circle of empathy? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I literally, like I start, I always start with the neurobiology and there's, so if you want to expand empathy, right, there's three tools at your disposal, the four tools, you psychedelics, nature experiences that'll work flow states, right in in nature i mean you go for a, a long hike in in the woods and, and and kick yourself drop drop into flow runner's high along the way and, and that'll work um over time right um you can also use uh tibetan or not tibetan just any loving kindness meditation um which uh richie davidson at the university of wisconsin studied tibetan buddhists with 10,000 hours of, of couch time or cushion time. And they'd all, it was a loving kindness practice. These studies. So we've got really good data on how that works and how that expands empathy. I always tell people start with the simplest one. I always think empathy starts at home and you can start just by running a really neat experiment on the plants and animals in your life. Just literally, if you have dogs in your life, start treating for two weeks Think about your dog as if it had equal rights to you. It's got all the same feelings, got all the emotions, it's got like all the same rights in a sense. So how, what would it be like to interact with that way? Or think about plants as, oh, wow, they're a lot more conscious and aware. Just start, that's, that expands our sphere of caring. Once, once you follow your, how do you expand our sphere of caring? Curiosity. Yeah. Information, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like um, this was sort of, the great brilliance in, uh, you know, when they put Cosby on the air and when they put Will and Grace on the air, a lot of those shows were designed mm -hmm. to put other black people, gay people into people's living rooms. Yeah. So mm -hmm. like to you normalize brain, you automatically kind, go, yeah. Oh, like us, not mm -hmm. like them and expand this. That's all you do to expand the sphere of caring. You decide something is more like you than unlike you. And so once you start thinking about, the plants and animals and that will start happening naturally, which is really cool. And you could run any of these experiments, right? It, take your pick. Um, the cool thing about this. So there's a, there's also a good neurobiological peak performance reason to run this experiment, which is this. We take in a colossal amount of information every second just the senses gather about 11 million bits of information a second. And, but most of the information in the brain is comes from the brain itself. So like that 11 million bits is meant internally by a huge other number of bits. Yeah. Consciousness 
all the shit that is like rises up and could be, you could be aware of is about 2000 bits. So it's this giant reduction. What we can actually pay attention to is even smaller. It's 200, 300 bits. And listening to me talk, by the way, you're using about 60 bits of RAM. So that's <laughs> a, a, way, a way to know, right? So conscious, like what we actually are paying attention to is really tiny. Normally we have a negativity bias. And what that translates to is a nine to one ratio between negative information we take in and positive information. We do this because the brain evolved and it's, you know, in a time where like every danger could be life threatening. So yeah. we're tuned. That lizard brain's always in control, so to speak, in the background, kind of like exactly. preserving yourself. How do you widen? How do you change that ratio? How do you switch it from like, you know, let take in less negative information, more other information? One of the key ways to do it is empathy. Um, and the reason this is a big deal is once you start letting in most of the negative information that we let in is it's already familiar stuff, right? It's stuff we're already worried about. We're already scared about. And it's usually not that new. It's usually old fears. It's reigniting and all creativity, all innovation, all opportunity, entrepreneurship, all that stuff comes not often from things that we've seen a million times comes from noticing novelty. And if you start tilting this ratio with empathy, you start noticing new details about the environment. You will, if you do this sort of exercise with your dog, for example, after a couple of weeks, you'll start noticing things about canine behavior that you've never seen before. You're going to, you're suddenly going to be like, oh my God, my dog is a totally different person. I never, where'd all this signaling come from? Suddenly you're going to feel like you speak dog a little bit more. Um, and it's a really neat experiment to run. So that's, I mean, start there. And the other higher level, one step out. People don't realize this, but it's really freaking simple. We make the planet a better place environmentally one decision at a time. We know if you want to help the planet, we want to eat less meat. And, you know, chicken is better than beef and vegetables are better than chick. Fish is better than chicken and vegetables are better than fish. And it's just better for the planet. I'm not saying become a vegetarian. I'm just saying every time you sit down for a meal, understand that you're making a decision. They could make the world a slightly better place or a slightly worse place. Same thing with how you buy your groceries, how you buy anything. Do you buy car seats with leather? Do you need them? Do you buy, do you have a leather belt or leather shoes? Those are, you know, do you need, you know, do, is, do you, do you want cruelty free clothing? Um, these kinds of questions are how we start answering it. We mm. answer it with decisions and with our wallet. And it's really, it's really small. It sounds like you're asking us to make better decisions to help ourselves and the planet. And that's just a bunch of bullshit. I'm not going to stand for See, that. I, I knew, I knew you were going to be a hostile to this stuff. I knew it. <laughs> I think this interview is over. <laughs> Guys, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. Um, in my place though, I've got up. Uh, Never mind. <laughs> Just stop there. <laughs> no, that is that's the hardest thing is change, you know, and it doesn't even have to be. It's this not though. Like I don't know. It's it's not like you you could you just have to do it. Is all. It's not that Habit hard. You is a hell of a drug. Knowing the difference is, is the hard part, right. you know. And once you understand that, it's habit is a hell of a drug which is why i think like you want to make it as easy for people as possible yeah. that's why i always say look environmentalism starts at home starts with how you think about like the the plants and animals you already sort of care about don't like all this stuff is hard 
But it's also, if we don't solve these challenges, I don't like our chances of survival and neither does anybody else. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's like, that's just, and I'm, I've written books about optimism and technology solving grand, you know what I mean? And if I don't like our chances, unless we solve these problems, something's really wrong here, Mm. you know? Referring back to the book, are we going to see more of Lion in the future or what's yeah, next so for you? I, I don't think the way I look at it is last their companion books. I'm mm-hmm. really not thinking that you have to read one first, one second, anything like right. that. But there is definitely, here's what I can tell you. There's a prequel to last tango that I don't know if I'll ever write, but I know what the story is. <laughs> There's a book between last tango and devil's dictionary. Um, that's really, really clear. And as I was writing Devil's Dictionary, I was having a conversation with Ray Kurzweil, who is a futurist and the head of artificial intelligence at Google, and um, Pete, my partner, my writing partner, Peter's co-founder of Singularity University. And he, Ray knows that I work with dogs and he likes animals. And he, but Ray and Ray and I have countless, endless arguments about where, where brain-computer interface technology actually is, mm-hmm. and when. You know, Ray believes in the singularity that we're going to get to a point with BCIs by the end of the 2030s that we're going to be able to upgrade our brain and et cetera, et cetera. And I think his timeline is wildly distorted and his neuroscience is wrong. <laughs> um, and this has been a argument for years, between, a friendly argument for years between us. And he looked at me the last time we were together and he's like, you know, Stephen, the same brain computer interface that's going to let me talk to the internet. It's going to let your dog talk to you. <laughs> So <laughs> shut me the fuck up. Right. Um, <laughs> let's just be clear on that one. It also gave me the goddamn next book out, right? <laughs> like it's right there. I was like, okay, like I know where we're going next. I mean, it's right there, right? Like in this book, people are taught are like you're able to sort of communicate with animals, but not verbally, and the animals aren't really talking back yeah. in human language. So in the next book, what happens then? And to think that you know, raise predictions, right? Mm-hmm. By the end of the 2030s, um, he's not wrong often. He hasn't really been wrong. His accuracy rate is better than, you know, it's in the high 99 percentile in terms wow, of yeah. what he, like he's per everything um, politically and technologically. He's just very good at this. And um, I'm not, I, you know, I think he's wrong on brain computer interfaces, but it does stop me and go, holy shit, sometime in the next 50 years, we can talk to animals, <laughs> right? Like, that's what he's saying. Like, yeah. Dr. Doolittle moved me a lot as a child, right? We did an episode of the show a while back. Uh, it was, you know, science in the next 50 years, 100 years. And we spoke to different scientists and, and academics. And it's staggering what they say, you know, using, you know, not going out on a limb, where we'll be in the next 50 oh, years. So I don't know if you know this. So here's the rate Ray shorthand. And this is what we wrote about in the futures faster than you think is we are going to experience in the 21st century, um, 20,000 years of technological change. In other words, we're going birth of agriculture to the industrial revolution twice in the next mm-hmm. eight years, in the next 10 years, it's a hundred years of technological change by like the conservative estimates. So think back to 1922, yeah. fast forward to now and compress it into now to 2032. Holy crap. 
is 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 there anything that you can see that is trying to not maybe not uh, specifically trying or malicious about it, but is there anything that is stopping or impeding that progress right now? So what you the way you got to look at it is it's not a smooth like there's twelve to fifteen different lines of exponential technologies that are accelerated to produce this right. Mm-hmm. They they get interrupted. COVID happens right. Mm-hmm. And so COVID shut down a bunch of stuff, but it also supercharged AI for drug discovery and AI for healthcare and a whole bunch of other things in the healthcare space, supercharged it. Mm. So where does all that AI research go after healthcare? Just in case you were wondering, the next level down, the same AI that will discover new drugs is going to get you new foods. So the reinvention of agriculture ends up spinning off of the healthcare jumpstart that COVID gave AI, right? And quantum as well. Quantum computing uh, got a big push during COVID as well for the same reasons. So that everything that's downstream from those things like the reinvention of agriculture, the material science um, just got supercharged because of events. So it's not that things derail it per se, but I will, there's there's some caveats here, I think. Um, it is that history tends to amplify certain things at certain times in certain ways, right? I'll give you another great example. This year for in, in the environmental good news story of the year, two, there are two great stories this year. The first is that we invested in the, in, in a, the venture world invested over a trillion dollars in green energy this year. Wow. So yeah. we're having an oil war right now basically. Mm. And the reaction to the oil war has been a trillion dollar in green energy spend, which is bigger than the AI spend that happened during COVID, just to put that in context. So that's, you know, insane. Simultaneously, most companies that had bullshit triple bottom line goals um, now have real ones. This is the year that I was, I thought it was just the guy I was looking at and I was seeing and then I started talking to people about it. And then the Harvard Business Review did a big article about it. And so now it's sort of like, like more accepted. Like this is the year that companies started to really understand environmental bottom line and how the environment impacts the bottom line and things like that. So those things we're seeing the environment has everybody's attention right now for obvious reasons. And uh, we're seeing that stuff move apace because climate change is really exerting a lot of pressure right now. So it, de- it depends on global events, what's going faster, what's going slower um, on a certain level. And some of this stuff is just like, we know virtual reality and augmented reality are going to explode over the next three to five years. That's our, that stuff is already happening. That's something that I, I'm always amazed at how much that terrifies people to the advent and the introduction of new technology still is met with that's the mark of the beast or this or that. I see it all <laughs> over the place and it is the wrong time to be living. If you feel that way if, about technology. I spent a really long time. So Kevin Kelly, founder of Wired, one of the founders of Wired, wrote, wrote some brilliant books on technology. And one of them is called what technology wants. And he wanted to know why can't you put Pandora back in the box? Like, what is it about technology that like, once we discover it, we have to develop it. It just keeps going grow, and growing. And he argued eloquently that technology is 
another form of life. It operates like an actual form of life, um, not like a thing um, that, that is inert. And I think he's right, perhaps, but I think there's a much simpler neurobiological explanation, which is it is freaking hard here on planet Earth, mm-hmm. and it's hard for everyone. And technology is quite simply the promise of an easier tomorrow. Yeah. And it's hope. It's the promise of hope. And hope is a really neurobiologically powerful, powerful drug. Hope and faith get us very, very, very far. Um, And that's ultimately that side of the coin. The other side of the coin is as you, any, and our, we have aging populations. And one of the things about aging populations is they get conservative and resistant to change and technology is massive amounts of change. And we all, as Dan Kahneman taught us, we have loss aversion. Loss aversion is the terrible fear that if I, right, whatever you have now, if I take it away, whatever comes next is worse. So we've got a lot of cognitive biases that keep us believing certain things. And the problem with technology is like the promise of hope is it doesn't like everybody gets the hope shows up during the hype cycle. And the hype cycle is really early, like VR's hype cycle, virtual reality's hype cycle was back in the 90s. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Lawn it was man. back in the 90s. Yeah. It was, and, and, you know, so like things get really loud 20 years before they have that impact. Now that that, that is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and I think, you know, there's also unintended, like social media may have been one of the largest disasters in the history of the universe. <laughs> That's an right? understatement. I think. Yeah. Like, there are just like, there are bad ideas and then there are colossally bad ideas. <laughs> that would be, you know what I like? That would be filed under. It is no, it's not. The irony is not lost on me that they call it like WMDs stands for web mobile device. I like the acronym. Yeah. I think it's appropriate. <laughs> right. Or while my uh, it doesn't fit, but uh, while everyone I know is racist, uh, <laughs> it's kind of what I think of <laughs> of social media for. It's um, uh, terrifying to say the least. Yeah, man, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us Super today. Super fascinating, Stephen. Thank you for for writing such a fantastic book, series of books. And if everyone wants to to not only follow your books, read, but to find you and listen, I know you have your flow research collective radio, but where should I send people or where should they come to find and listen to you more? Stephen is my website. K O T L E R and Stephen with a V. Um, we're not French. No PHs. <laughs> Do I look like a fucking existentialist? Um, P H U C K. Exactly. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I met, I, I recently met another Steve with a V and we spent two days talking about <laughs> how much we dislike the PHs. <laughs> There's a movement. <laughs> a hatred you didn't even know you had. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, StephenCollier.com. Flow Research Collective is me and all things flow. Uh, I am uh, on our podcast, the Flow Research Collective Radio, which is a top 10 science iTunes podcast. And uh, which I learned last week has fans in Mozambique. <laughs> okay, nice. just saying something. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, and that and and you can find me uh, on social media. Well, we'll have links to all this in the show notes, guys, so you don't have to go far to find them. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank, and you. thank you so much for an amazing book. 
Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This was great. Nation, we're going to break. We'll be right back with more Hysteria 51. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Brent, man, Stephen's super fascinating. I I found that uh, incredibly engaging because it's stuff you've heard, but then it's stuff you haven't thought about about what you've heard. Well, I found I felt personally attacked the whole time he kept talking about people creating (laughs) disruptive technology. I can't really put my finger on why, but for some reason, I just kept feeling... (laughs) <laughs> attacked by it eat my ass it's a mystery but um i yeah i thought it was really cool to think about uh he's a he's a, a smart cat think think about the uh like he was saying you know if if technology is going in a certain direction on a certain trajectory if something messes with that trajectory there's all this other fallout that happens good or bad but it affects different things in different ways because of that one fallout you know what i mean like yeah it's it's so cool to dive in i don't want to give too much of the book away i never want to do that but so when you guys hopefully do read into this so the the devil's dictionary think of it as like you know like the human genome project where they mapped it you know and Mm -hmm. so they could do it well this is a way to write the devil's dictionary is something they they write genomes and it makes it so they can make animals and things like that and so there are exotic animals being made and and that's where their technology is going it's a really cool trippy out there concept uh that is unlike anything i have uh read before so it's definitely also has a good message you know like it's always good to be more empathetic unless you hate everyone and want to see them all burn. You're not going to like it. If that's the case, <laughs> there were two thoughts I had on this and, and tell me if this is dumb or not, but I, I am afraid he is mistaken about the first flying motorcycle chase. in literature. <laughs> I, I thought to myself, that's Harry a bold Potter. statement. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 And um, the other thing was he was talking about how we were running, uh, bits, you know, just listening was like 60 bits of Ram mm-hmm. or whatever, man. I got to tell you, somebody's got to get back here with an air canister and clean out this fan on me. <laughs> I am running hot. <laughs> it's easily 128 kilobits. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting too what he said. And this is so true of the, the 91, nine to one negative info that you take in versus positive because it is the whole fight or flight you're taking in your surroundings you're worried you know like i said lizard brain we've just been trained not just our whole lives but for eons is you know or you know what i mean you know as a species to do that it's a hard thing to try to switch it sure is i mean you you said it habit is a hard thing uh, to form, but if you don't think about it, that's that's the key. Just do, just do it. Don't think about it. Think of something else. I've I've formed habits uh, doing that. Yeah, for the positive, and yeah, it's it's easier said than done, of course. But something's got to give. Yeah, I'm afraid we are all going to give. <laughs> you know, or the planet's going to give before <laughs> yeah. anybody. You know. 
<laughs> I always just am always interested in how, like, I love steak. Well, we can now make that exact same steak without killing an animal over my dead body. <laughs> you know, sometimes that's, uh, that's over my cow's dead body. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's a, it's a psychological thing, right? Right. Do you, did you ever see Snowpiercer the movie? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. I know. It Remember exactly. how they'd give them those little yep. jelly bricks mm-hmm. that were just the uh, um, they were bugs. Basically, yeah, they were bugs. They're bug bug pate type stuff. Yeah, you know, or jelly. And I, I'm sure in that world it did not taste good either. But if humanity had a way to do that, make it taste good, make it look good, and you know, tried to. Tell not tried to tell everybody it's not from bugs or don't worry about it or whatever. It's still gonna gonna be tough to swallow when you find out it's mm-hmm. it's made of bugs on right? on multiple levels. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, what do you guys think, Nation? Uh, have you guys ever thought about the the empathy world? Are you vegetarians? Do you think it's all a bunch of hubbub and and it's all fake? We'd love to hear from you. You can tell us by. Well, hop it on Facebook. Go to Facebook, look up Hysteria Nation, one of the evils of the world, social media that we were talking about previously. Mm. Uh, He's you can, right. <laughs> that's our Facebook discussion great page. Also, Facebook.com slash Hysteria51pod. That's our regular page. Patreon, Patreon.com slash hysteria fifty one. Apple Nights, Mad Blurry Hysterias. Also, little teaser, Lisa, producer Lisa just bought some food that I'm not allowed to look at. We're going to do a couple. She's got a Cafeteria 51, I think two of them, uh, <laughs> scheduled that she wants me to eat, and I'm not allowed to know what they are ahead of time, so that might be fun. Plus, oh. our Mad Blurry Hysterias when Chris is available, and Blurry Hysterias, uh, as you guys know. Voicemail, 773-669-7277. Again, that's 773-669-7277. Or... Go to Stereo51.com, click on the little microphone, and leave us a voicemail there. And you can find links to everything else through that website. And then uh, tell a friend, tell an enemy. You know, you know, it opened up some dialogue. <laughs> what you got going on in the world of everything that you got your fingers in, which is quite a bit. You're recording books <laughs> and doing podcasts and making movies and, I don't know, porn. I don't know what you're <laughs> all involved in. crazy. Yeah, I had to... Had to uh, move the garden the other day, too. Um, <laughs> Is that a euphemism that I'm not hip enough to know about? Yo, baby, I'm going to move that garden. I'll let you learn it on this. If I could, I would be throwing up right now. Um, yeah, I got I got a lot of stuff. We just ended the uh, miscrypted contest. Uh, just announced the winner of that. That's a whole lot of fun. Month of May is over. Month of May was awful. <laughs> just finished, also finished a new audiobook, so that one should be... Uh, coming out soon. I'll of course let everybody know when that is live on audible. Uh, and the, um, the documentary is coming along nicely. We just, uh, had our second, uh, cut of the film. Now we, we put away the machete. We take out the scalpel. We, we do the finer details. It's, it's getting there and very very excited. Getting so nearer, that's what's going on. nearer and nearer. Also, we are we're running a contest. I forgot to say. I should have mentioned this at the beginning. Uh, leave us a review anywhere that allows reviews. Spotify. You can just leave the five star. Give us a video, or not five star. You can give us whatever is in your heart. But take a photo <laughs> or Apple, but, or but five star <laughs> Pod uh, Pod Chaser. Uh, anywhere that allows you to do reviews, take a screenshot. Five star reviews. 
and then go to Hysteria Nation, and there is in the pin posts at the top or the featured posts, there is one uh, all this month. Just post a photo, and we're going to pick two winners and get get uh, prize packs, including T-shirts for both of them and other prizes, lots of goodies. So it's an easy one. doesn't cost you anything, and anyone who enters uh, can do it. Just uh, post that photo. Of five stars. And if you've left one before, there's other places to leave it. We're being, uh, you know, selfish. We, we, we crave external validation. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what's going on uh, in the world. And uh, go pet your pet. That's the uh, takeaway. And um, uh, do, do, do good out there. <laughs> With that said, I've been Brent. I've been David. He's been Conspiracy Bot. Stay woke, meet sex. It was terrible. It was just terrible. I'll never get over it as long as I That's it for another edition of Hysteria 51. We'll be back next week with yet more of the unexplained, the unexplored, and the unheard of. Oh, if it's unheard of, how will they know about it? Anyway, if you want to suggest a topic, give us your thoughts, or just make fun of Conspiracy Bot, that's my favourite, join us in our Facebook discussion group, Hysteria Nation. Just log on to Facebook and search Hysteria Nation, or you can always tweet us at Hysteria51Pod. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.